Old powers waken, shadows stir, an age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us, an age for gods and heroes. The glass candles are burning, and you're listening to the Obsidian Knights Podcast. Welcome to Obsidian Nights, where we go through chapter by chapter and do in-depth analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire, and I'll add other books later. My name is MJ from the YouTube channel Gray Area. Sweet summer children, make some noise wherever you are. So you can watch these podcasts in visual format on YouTube on my channel where I do a lot of other things you might care about or you might not care about. But if you're listening to this podcast on Apple, Podbean, wherever, please leave a review and let me know how I'm doing. We we all need assurance sometimes. So we're still in Winterfell and it's Demon Monkey Day, Tyrion 1. And my special guest for Tyrion 1 is Mark from Sir Hunt's Reviews. Hey, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me on. The pleasure is mine. Do you want to let everyone know where they can find you at? Uh, Absolutely. You can find me over on YouTube. Uh, If you just type in Sir Hunt's Reviews, I'll most likely be the first channel that pops up. Um, And you can find me over on Twitter at Sir underscore Hunt's. Okay, so... Go ahead on over to Sir Hunt's Reviews and check him out. And today, we're going to be talking about Tyrion 1 of A Game of Thrones. So, when the chapter opens, in the great stone maze of Winterfell, a wolf is howling. And his howl sends chills through Tyrion Lannister. So, Tyrion is in the library of Winterfell. He has been up all night reading. And he's not, not just reading any book. He's reading a 100-year-old discourse on the changing of seasons by a long-dead maester. So being that A Game of Thrones starts off in the middle of the longest summer in known history, and it's leading to a pretty brutal long winter or long night if no one stops it, I find like the book choice a little curious. Both this book and the other book. So the second book that he's reading is actually not a book. It's a Valyrian set of scrolls named Engines of War. And Winterfell has the only complete copy of Engines of War. Engines of War is pretty rare. Tyrion has seen uh, bits and pieces of it across the kingdoms, I'm guessing. <laughs> I want to say so. something really doesn't make sense to me, right? So I was reading it and I'm like, hold up. This is a medieval story. What, what, what is up with engines, engines being in the story? Like the concept of engines in a medieval story doesn't really make sense to me. Um, it's kind of one of those things, though, that sort of like the, this story, you can't put a specific thumb on what time period it is because they know things all the way up to like sterilization techniques. So it's kind of like, you know, it's got it covers many different things but for the most part it seems like it's set in the medieval era but they know things that we don't find out in you know the actual our society we didn't find out until hundreds of years after that time period so yeah that's true and then it's valyrian scrolls so we know that valyria was very 
much more advanced than Westeros. Like, apart from everywhere else, basically, Valyria is super advanced. And then I was kind of thinking, like, maybe I'm overthinking it because this story does have, like, different kinds of engines, like siege engines or trebuchets. And I don't know. I, I when I when I hear Valyrian scroll and engines of war being Valyrian, it could be about like maybe some super advanced siege weapons that they had in Valyria. But I think, given Tyrion's fascination with dragons, that one of the biggest engines of war in Westeros is one hundred percent dragons and dragon warfare. So I think engines of war might be about dragons and dragon warfare. And Tyrion reading about it early on in the chapter or in the book is suspect. Like, are you Tyrion Targaryen or Tyrion Lannister? <laughs> yeah, I feel like that that's uh, definitely more of a thing in the books. Um, it, it's it kind of makes me also wonder if maybe he knew something was coming. You know, like we, we are about to begin the War of the Five Kings. So it's it almost shows you that maybe Tyrion is the most prepared. He's he's start like we find out about him sort of like in his first chapter anyway, you know, he fell asleep in a library of all places. You know what I mean? And he's probably I think the most well read out of all the POVs. Yeah, he's definitely the most well read character. Like he he has that line, a sword needs a whetstone like books wait. Your mind I need to needs look a, that up. You got it. You had it. It was it was your your mind. Uh, needs books like a sword needs a whetstone something like that okay yeah <laughs> that's about to say don't let me fuck that up <laughs> so yeah he says your mind needs books like a sword needs sword needs a whetstone so he is one of the most uh learned men like i feel like Ty- tywin missed the opportunity of sending him to the citadel why like tywin wanted to be rid of Tyrion. why didn't he just send him to the citadel yeah that's a good like point a maester. yeah I feel like there might have been maybe Tyrion's size would have prevented. Oh, that's not true. He's like an acrobat in the books. I was gonna say maybe his size prevented him from doing certain maesterly duties, like procedures or something. And, and then, and then also the fact that he has to be an advisor to a leader or a lord, they wouldn't give him maybe as much credit because he's a bastard. Or, or maybe Tywin was just too proud to have his. Even though he, we all know he hated Tyrion. Maybe he was just too proud to have his son. You know be sent to something like that because I, I feel like he would have he could have like sam's father basically forced him into going to the wall and you know there's certainly tywin could do that yeah i wonder why randall tarley sent samwell to the wall and not the citadel as well like you want to be rid of these children send them to the citadel but tywin chooses to just torment Tyrion, and randall tarley sends samwell to a place where he renounces all claims to lands and titles and such and such and such and such which i think you do that when you become a maester as well but i'm wondering if you know dragons being hinted at in this chapter has anything to do with Tyrion being a targaryen i i personally am more Tyrion lannister like i think he's a lannister well i will say this i honestly think <laughs> that george has left it open on purpose. Like, he hasn't decided which way he's going to go with Tyrion's 
parentage. Is Tyrion going to be a Lannister or is he going to be a Targaryen? Like, I say this because George describes himself as, like, his writing type as a gardener. Like, he's not an architect where he sets up all these plot points that, I don't know, You have you saw his outline, like, that he initially set up? Uh, yeah, I remember looking at it once or twice. Um, didn't he have John and Arya initially? Uh, get- John, Arya, and Tyrion, like, in a love triangle. It's the, the story that is in that outline is vastly different from the story that we have. So, with him being, like, this gardener, I think that he plants a lot of seeds, and he waters the seeds that he wants to grow. And that's why, like, so many theories are so convincing because George has planted these seeds. And the question is, which seeds will he continue to water? Like, what would it mean to the story either way? Like, I like Tyrion being a Lannister and being Tywin's trueborn son. But I do see the potential for Tyrion Targaryen. Like, it's undeniable that this that he's obsessed with dragons and he dreams about dragons he even dreams that he's Maylee's the monstrous like with two heads fighting in battle in a in a dance with dragons so I definitely see it like what do you prefer Lannister or Targaryen um I mean I'm you know I'm house Targaryen so I, I prefer as many secret Targaryens as possible but if we were to look at something like the, the practicality of it doesn't really make sense, right? So we have the the rumor. I think the strongest rumor is probably the fact that we have Joanna being, like, bedded by uh, the Mad King on, on their wedding night. But if that was the case, then that would mean that, that Jamie and Cersei are Targaryen. Um, Which I love that idea. <laughs> and then that would mean that... that Tyrion would be Tywin's one true son, and and I Love can't it. remember the genetics, but I feel like there's something with Lannister men having some like not every Lannister man, but every other generation or so, something happens where they have some sort of. I, I I could be mistaken there, but I feel like I. I love the idea of Tyrion being a secret Targaryen, especially since we know he's about to meet Daenerys, or he kind of already has, but you know he doesn't exactly. Uh, they don't. They, they haven't officially meet. You know what I mean? Like she just thinks he's like a dwarf or whatever. But uh, uh, I I like the idea more than I think it is practical. I think I think it's it's more so like you said that, that Tyrion is Tywin's bane, his one true one true heir, and he treats him the most like shit. Yeah, that I mean I I agree that Tyrion being a Lannister is way better in my opinion than Tyrion being a Targaryen because when I I look at it like you know. Well, what? How does Tyrion being a Targaryen advance the story? And most people that I ask this will say, well, because he's going to ride a dragon. And I'm like, why is he going to ride a dragon? Why do we need Tyrion riding a dragon? I don't think he's going to ride a dragon. I think Fagon is going to have the Sarion, not Tyrion. But that's the, the, we're getting a little far from Tyrion 1. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back to Tyrion 1 of Game of Thrones. Tyrion 1 is our first point of view of an outsider in A Song of Ice and Fire. So every other chapter has been the Starks. Eddard, Catelyn, Bran, Arya, Jon, or Daenerys, who is far removed from what's going on in Winterfell. So everybody in Winterfell has been a Stark. 
But now we are in the mind of the lions. And I think like right off the bat, Tyrion is a likable character. And I think George does a lot to make us like him in this chapter. I feel like he brings some humanity back into the fold. Like the Stark children... John and Arya in their first chapters are kind of sulky, depressing, little bastard lord and little lady that have dire wolves as pets. Bran Stark is like a little lord that is climbing castle walls and dreaming of being a knight hanging from gargoyles. And Ned Stark is like this warden of the north, lord of Winterfell, war hero, like best friend of the king. And like it's like, okay, well, can we really relate to these people? And then there's Tyrion. And he's like normal. He reads and he tells jokes. And that's basically the extent. So like he brings the story back in before it goes out too far. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think uh, like it's that's part of the genius of George's writing without actually coming out and saying, hey, he's he's uh, on the opposing side. But I'm going to hint at the subtle the subtlety of of his good nature you know what i mean at, at some deep down you know he's a good supposed to be a good person so i think like the jokes that he has with uh tommen and marcella are sort of like hints to that the fact that he's delivering the news of bran uh possibly surviving is sort of what everybody's wondering anyway it 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 kind of like you said it's the perfect start to his character right it really is like if and to me like He's the most relatable character so far because all of them are kind of like fantasy tropey characters that have all these fantasy elements like pet direwolves that, you know, follow them around and they can swing from castles and stuff. And it's funny because if you look at Tyrion and how he described, like how he's described, he's the least normal looking character in the story he's a dwarf with mixed mixed matched eyes and uneven shoulders and white hair and i just think he 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 like centers the story and brings it back so for me when i first read a song of ice and fire Tyrion was the character that i liked the most um in the first few chapters and i feel like Tyrion is like this machiavelli type person I, I like I, I I could see Tyrion being the author of the Prince, which is basically like the ends justify the means. Like and and even him reading the the like you were saying, him reading that book, the Engines of War. It shows that he's interested in politics and war, and he's educating himself on that stuff because maybe he does know something is coming. And I think George R. R. Martin has made like a historical comparison for Game of Thrones, um, like to the War of the Roses. No, not I think. J- I know. <laughs> George R. R. Martin has made historical comparisons for Game of Thrones to the War of the Roses. But more specifically, he made the comparison that Tyrion Lannister is like Richard III. Um, in plays and shit, Richard is always like ramshackle and hunchback and ugly and evil. I feel like Tyrion Lannister is likely more like the real Richard III than Shakespeare or whoever else depicts him. I feel like George took Tyrion and wrote him as he saw Richard III. Yeah, and um, it, he's it's it's also like interesting 
who he chooses to like inspire characters to be because aren't the yorks who richard the third like the side that he fights for the yorks aren't they supposed to be the most like the starks and then you know you have the lancasters as the lancers so it's interesting how he's pulling like this is a good guy from the other side you know what i mean and, and ultimately in the end you could say with him being handed the king to bran it's similar to that like with i don't know if if he ends up handed the king to bran in the books then yeah i mean i i think more so like when you look at historical comparisons and and the things that george does from history there's usually there are some one-to-one comparisons, but not really. They're always, like, mixed up and jumbled up. And I love that about George because I love historical comparisons and I love the mythology that he adds. He always adds, like, multiple... Like, if he has, if there's a folklore story, he takes two folklore stories, puts them together, makes them one, and puts it in the, in his book. And I love that shit. So... As Tyrion descends the steps and heads outside, it's dawn. The men are in the yard practicing swords. He overhears Joffrey and the Hound, Sandor Clegane, talking. And basically, they are both wanting Bran to hurry up and die. Like, basically, they're like, hurry up and die so they can leave Winterfell. So Joffrey is complaining about the wolves howling and it keeping him up at night. Sandor offers to kill the wolf. Joffrey says the famous line, send a dog to kill a dog. This is one of the first signs to me that Joffrey is a psycho. Like, I think children that harm animals is, like, in real life, actually a clinical sign of being a homicidal maniac. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's always, like, even as a kid, I remember people joking, like, you know, so you find out one of the kids, like, hurting animals. That's like, oh, they're going to be a serial killer, you know? So, yeah, for sure. When we get Joffrey, like, we know that Joffrey is a piece of shit. Like, we we find out in Arya and John, Arya's POV and John's POV that Arya, that Joffrey is a piece of shit. But not to the extent where he wants Bran to die and he's excited that the Hound has offered to kill this dire wolf. And this is like that, that send a dog to kill a dog line is what eventually convinces... Tyrion that Joffrey is the one that's hired the cat's ball to kill Bran. I'm wondering if Joffrey also wanted to frame Tyrion for it because the library where Tyrion just was is what gets burned down and Littlefinger somehow points the finger at Tyrion as well and blames him for saying that the dagger is his so i'm wondering if littlefinger and joffrey have put their minds together and framed Tyrion. it's definitely possible i think uh the fact that we see uh joffrey was able to keep his composure as long as he did when he's being mentioned in Arya's pov um and everyone else's pov before we see it from Tyrion lets you know that he knows how to play the game his mother cersei she teaches him from an early age like don't say shit like uh wish your decrepit brother or excuse my language <laughs> I, uh, you know would die because he's because his dog is annoying me and i can't sleep you know we see that he doesn't you know like you said that's the first sign of it in the book so we see that he's able to play the game so for sure yeah Tyrion Tyr- one it, it's definitely a more intimate look at joffrey like because you're getting it from his uncle 
Like his, it's his uncle's POV. So it's definitely a more intimate look. So and Tyrion counsels Joffrey on doing his duty as a prince and a guest in someone's home. Like he he tells him, it's past time you called on Lord Eddard and his lady to offer them your comfort. And Joffrey just doesn't understand the principle of this or even care, to be honest. And that gets him slaps from Tyrion and instantly makes Tyrion likable. Yep. So he gets slapped twice. (laughs) Yeah, he gets slapped twice. And there's like cuts. You can go on YouTube and there's like an hour long slaps of just (laughs) Tyrion slapping Joffrey. I find it odd that Joffrey's mother or father hasn't already given him this counsel like already told him to do this and this task of leading Joffrey down the right path or correcting Joffrey's behavior is falling to Tyrion and Tyrion is the one that has to make him do what he needs to do which I definitely think is foreshadowing of their relationship as far as the books go because Cersei lets Joffrey like do as he likes but Tyrion will come in and check him and Tyrion, like, when Joffrey's king, Cersei kind of just lets him do whatever he, he's he's doing. And Tyrion is like, no. And then Tywin, which Tyrion is the mini Tywin, but Tywin, he does that shit, too. He's like, the king's tired. Take him to bed. <laughs> yeah, he's like, we'll be hearing none of that. Yeah, none of it. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on Tyrion being the one to have to tell Joffrey to do what he needs to do and not his parents? I feel like it just sort of relates back to you were saying what you were saying um, a few minutes ago. It's about Tyrion is this is all about explaining why he's the best Lannister, and they're giving George is giving you a examples of it and not giving you like a direct line. Okay, Tyrion disciplines Joffrey. He's the only one that checks this this would be king yeah. who, if he were to take the crown, would be the worst thing to ever happen to the Seven Kingdoms. And guess what? It's probably going to happen. So George establishes that earlier by giving that discipline role, role sorry to uh, jo- to Tyrion as opposed to. Cersei or Jaime because he wants to show you look like Tyrion is the one who's the most capable out of all of them yeah Tyrion is the he's the good Lannister yeah they probably have disciplined them as much as they can for for a certain point but also like you know this is a different era if Cersei were to do something like that I'm pretty sure you know Joffrey somewhat fears Tyrion I guess because we we're saying you know Tyrion embodies Tywin so Tywin or uh Joffrey probably sees that side of Tyrion a little bit and almost has that fear that he does of Tywin his grandfather so it 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 shows you that um you know early on what kind of person he is and what 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 kind of priorities he holds we're like being formal as basically slapping Joffrey for refusing to just do something kind like hey uh, you know, I'm standing in your house. I know your son just lost his ability to walk, and he's like unconscious right now, and he may die. Um, I'm sorry that that's happened. Joffrey refuses to do that, and Tyrion's the one to be like, no, 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 no. You're, you know, you need to. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And there's a lot of things in this chapter as we go forward that you guys will see that make Tyrion likable. That were purposely put there to make Tyrion likable. So the Hound. Um, tells Tyrion like he warns him and he's basically telling him you know Joffrey won't be a boy forever one day he will be king and he's gonna pay you back 
for that smack. And Tyrion's like, good, I hope he remembers. And if he doesn't, be a good dog and remind him. And I think, like, Tyrion is more so saying, like, I hope he remembers the lesson. Like, I hope he remembers the courtesy that he should extend to his lords, bannermen, lord, like, his vassals. Like, this is just common courtesy shit that Joffrey doesn't knows because he's a petulant little bastard. But the Hound directs Tyrion to Jamie and um, Jamie's eating breakfast with Queen Cersei and her children. And we kind of find out what's going on with Bran. Tyrion definitely suspects Jamie and Cersei no more than they are letting on. Like he notices glances between them. So Tyrion visited Bran and it seems he might live and Cersei and Jamie seem a little distraught about this news. And Tyrion, he's smart. He's an observant man. Like you you could tell he's observant just like from his descriptions of the actual characters. Now that we know him more like Tommen and Marcella and Joffrey and Cersei, they are all accurate. But Tyrion really has a soft spot for Jamie. There was very little Jamie took seriously. Tyrion knew that about his brother and forgave it. During all the terrible long years of his childhood, only Jamie had ever shown him the smallest measure of affection or respect. And for that, Tyrion was willing to forgive him most anything. So <laughs> when it comes to Jamie, and my belief is that Jamie's story is one of redemption. He has to start off like the absolute worst because it, his story is about redeeming. So you can't redeem from a, being a good person. Like you have to be a bad person in order to redeem yourself. But when you find out like this cool guy that we've met that slapped Joffrey and told him what to do and seems to be on the right side of things, likes Jamie. The, the most of his entire family. The guy that just pushed a seven-year-old out of a window in the previous chapter. Like, your my mind says, your family, your entire family must be awful. Like, that that's my thought. It, you have to have an awful fucking family if the guy that just pushed a kid out of the window is the only person in your family or from your childhood that's ever shown you the smallest measure of affection or respect. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's it, it also shows you that uh, Jamie and Tyrion's relationship is probably something that's going to endure the, the any sort of tumultuous time they go through. Uh, they're love for one another is going to endure it and and george is letting us know that early on you know by mentioning that Tyrion has such a crazy uh f devotion towards jamie that no matter what he does he'll always love him yeah he will like jamie and Tyrion's relationship it like right now in the books like as of a dance with dragons like their relationship is really bad really on the rocks but i do feel like because of the bond that they've had since childhood that it will be something that's going to be mended but like Tyrion has a lot of right now in A Dance with Dragons Tyrion is a bitter soul and he has a lot of soul searching to do and I hope that it leads him back to console, uh, uh, consoling with his brother I hope yeah, I feel like his feelings about, you know, 
making them promise that he would get to rape Cersei when it's all said and done would probably, uh, like, if if we're to believe what Jamie says earlier on in the books, not necessarily his attitude towards her now, or I guess if he even survives his his uh, what it's what's about to happen to him in the Riverlands, um, I feel like that would would normally raise some sort of. Uh, maybe strife that could come up between Jamie and Tyrion, but I feel like both of their attitudes towards Cersei may actually bring them closer. I guess. Yeah. That that's that's I, I agree with that because Jamie does have like this disdain for Cersei right now, and where he's just like ignored her pleas for help. But I do wonder, like, is he gonna make it out of Lady Stoneheart's cave? I don't know. Yeah, it's. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I feel like there could be, you know, obviously Brienne will bring him to her, but I don't know if, if Brienne's the one that's supposed to be forced to, or maybe, I guess, the one, the executioner, I don't know if she would bring herself to be able to do it. Yeah. I, I, it's hard to say. It's hard to say because there's a lot going on, but Jamie's weirwood tree, be, weirwood dream being in a cave it's kind of scary because he his sword does go out, his fire does go out, but it's it's scary. But I always thought that Jamie would fight against the others, so I'm hoping he doesn't die in a cave. But also, I would rather him die at the hands of Lady Stoneheart than to die by a rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I can't even, not even kidding, not even kidding. Yeah. So um. <laughs> but so we get new info on Bran from Tyrion and um Bran is likely to live but he would never walk again. But one of the most interesting parts of this chapter is um Tyrion says it seems the wolf is keeping him alive. I'll read the quote. I would swear that wolf of his is keeping the boy alive. The creature is outside his window day and night howling. Every time they chase it away, it returns. The maester said they closed the window once to shut out the noise and Bran seemed to weaken. When they opened it again, his heart beat stronger. So what are your initial thoughts about that quote? Um, The connection of, like, I mean, it, you could we could say... The wolf. Yeah, we could say what's happening with John, where everyone thinks he warged into Ghost, right, after being stabbed. Um, mm-hmm. We could say that you know, Bran's spirit left his body because it's so broken and he's maybe in his, like, literally warged into Summer's body and when they close the window, he loses that connection and he, he, it, he maybe he feels as though as long as he could see his human body, he won't forget who he is because we all know, like, when you're warging, if you stay too long under the sea, you'll drown. So maybe he feels he could have that rooted connection to this this plane of existence if he can physically see himself through the window uh like while he's in his oh, dire- i like that while he's in his dire wolf I, I i like that idea um the starks are really connected to their dire wolves and i think like maybe bran may have been working in and out of summer like during his coma or wolf dream or like summer was trying to warn bran not to fly in th- while he was having that coma dream 
because from the last chapter analysis that I did with Joe Magician, it seems that like the crows wanted one thing to happen and Summer wanted another. Like the crows, Blood Raven, they wanted Bran to fall. They wanted Bran to open this third eye. But Summer seemed to be warning Bran. So it could be like that. But I do like the idea that maybe Bran is actually inside Summer and trying to keep that connection with his human body. Yeah, it yeah, could I like that. It could also be like, you know, with the natural instincts of dogs, they're to protect their human companion. So maybe Summer wasn't necessarily uh you know, going, I guess, forbidding him from falling, but maybe forbidding him from going down the route in which, if it's similar to how it was on the show, maybe Summer ends up dying, but maybe she knows that Bran uh, ends up dying in in the process. Not like dying in the actual physical sense, but dying and becoming something else. Yeah, something evil. Yeah, or just another <laughs> another thing entirely, you know? Yeah, so... And it's in this chapter that we learn that Tyrion is going to the wall, which is like more reason to love him. And all of the more reason that Robert is a terrible king. I feel like a king going all the way to Winterfell and then not going to the wall to check out the Night's Watch is like a, a slap in the face to the Night's Watch. Um, like, take some notes from good Queen Alysanne. <laughs> she went to Winterfell. From Winterfell, she went to the wall. And they named a keep after her because it's important that the king knows what's going on with the guardians of their northern border to their kingdom. Yeah. Robert, don't give a fuck. I feel like that's just part of Robert, though, because if he had done that and gone to the wall, then he wouldn't he wouldn't be Robert. He wouldn't he wouldn't be the, the, the fat, lazy king that we know him as at this point in the story where it's first starting out. If he were to do something that showed him being just a, a a wise ruler we wouldn't have the same image of you know this 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 drunken former sort of like high school uh you know <laughs> letterman jacket guy you know yeah like a frat boy that graduated 10 years ago still showing up at college parties yep. like hey you remember that That's one time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's Bobby B all day well, we also find out that the whores will go begging from Dorne to Castle Rock if Tyrion would go celibate. And I feel like this is all the more reason to like him. Like, Tyrion is just extra likable. And I feel like George goes to great measure for you to like Tyrion. Which is good because it's good to connect with someone on the other side of the story. Like, like for example, I don't love, love Stannis. But all the Stannis stuff is basically told through Davos. So it's easier to digest because I love Davos. So I think it's it's good. Like a lot of the antagonist story is told through the POV of a very likable character. Yeah. Makes us, makes, makes you, like you said, it makes it more palatable. But that's basically all for Tyrion 1. It... Tyrion 1 is not a long chapter. It's a very short chapter and it's a very short introduction to Tyrion. But I do think that it's a great introduction because George goes way out of his way to make you like Tyrion. And I like him. Like just reading this chapter alone, I like him. Yeah, he's definitely one of my favorite uh, 
characters in in like you were saying he's he, the fact that he's so likable makes makes you realize that George enjoys probably writing and I think he said this in interviews he enjoys writing for Tyrion uh, a lot more than other characters and that shows you know Tyrion in a dance becomes it becomes a different person but in the beginning you know it you kind of it kind of forces you to go back and reread his earlier chapters to remember why you fell in love with him as a character you know what I mean? And then you see why he is the way he sort of is. But also the fact that we get to to hear sort of his internal monologue or like what he's thinking helps even more, I think, make him a fan favorite than like as opposed to the TV show where we're just forced to see him interact with other people and we don't really get to know, you know, what's going on. Yeah. The, the, what sold it for me on Tyrion was, one, he is correcting Joffrey. He's correcting the evil prince that no one wants to correct. Um, two, he's fighting for a boy that he doesn't really know while everyone's like hoping he dies. Tyrion actually wants him to live. Yeah. And he he's suspicious of his family. And what also sells Tyrion for me is that he is down for an adventure. He wants to go to the wall. He likes having sex. He he wants to like he he reads books. He tells jokes. He slapped the shit out of Joffrey. How can you not love Tyrion at this point? I mean, there's gonna be a lot to dislike about Tyrion down the road, but right now, I love him. Love him. Love him. Love him. Love him. Lots. Yeah, and um, I think the fact that he, you know, sort of teases Jamie a little bit where he says, like, you know, if Bran is able to talk, I wonder what kind of story he'll tell sort of thing. And then Tyrion, or sorry, then Jamie questions Tyrion. He's like, oh, where do where are your loyalties really at? It it sort of shows you that Tyrion knows uh, somewhat about Jamie and Cersei. So it kind of lets you, you know, see that he's, I guess, somewhat accepting of that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. That's another thing to sort of like well, about him. Well, he says it. He says it. He says, I'm, I will forgive Jamie for almost anything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's Tyrion 1. And, and next week, I will be having Tony Teflon on from Teflon TV to talk about John 2. Tony is going to be defending Catelyn because everyone knows I hate her. So I specifically picked him because he likes her. <laughs> But that's going to be fun. But in the meantime, Mark, do you want to let everybody know where they can find you, what you're up to, um, give them the spiel? Yep. Uh, so once again, I'm Mark from Sir Hunt's Reviews. You can find me over on YouTube at Sir Hunt's Reviews and also on Twitter at Sir underscore Hunts. Um, I'm working on like uh, sort of best to worst of each season of Game of Thrones. And then I'm also going to start pumping out some uh, House of the Dragon videos just to sort of get everybody uh, on the same page of what to expect in maybe the first couple seasons of the television show. Yeah, I cannot wait for House of the Dragon. <laughs> there will be fire and blood. <laughs> As always, thanks for listening to Obsidian Knights. And we will see you next week with John 2. Okay, my sweet summer children, stay safe.